Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and a warm welcome from me, Peter Lewis, to Money Talk on Tuesday the 30th of May. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your favourite podcast app. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines... Republican leaders and the White House have secured the backing of enough lawmakers for their deal to avert a damaging default on U.S. debts to be approved by Congress. The first crucial test is expected to be a vote in the House on Wednesday, followed by a vote in the Senate that could slip to the weekend. Lawmakers have until June the 5th to pass the bill before the U.S. Treasury is projected to run out of cash. Jensen Huang, the co-founder and chief executive officer of NVIDIA, said Monday we've reached the tipping point of a new computing era, saying that artificial intelligence had dramatically lowered the barrier to entry to computer coding. Speaking to the Computex conference in Taipei, he warned that the traditional tech index wouldn't keep pace with AI's advances. And he described the combination of accelerated computing and generative AI as a reinvention from the ground up. Hong Kong's trade fell again in April and at a faster pace than the month before. Exports shrank by 13% from a year earlier. It was the 12th consecutive month of declines for exports, with the drop accelerating from March's 1.5% decline. Imports dropped by 11.9%, falling for the 10th straight month after dropping just 0.6% in March year-on-year. And India's Central Bureau of Investigation, the country's top investigations agency, has filed a criminal complaint accusing Rolls-Royce and BAE Systems of engaging in corruption over historic deals to supply fighter jets to the country. The CBI alleged that the companies had between 2003 and 2012 engaged in a criminal conspiracy to cheat the government of India over deals to manufacture dozens of BAE's Hawk aircraft, which used Rolls-Royce engines. On today's Money Talk, I'm joined by Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, also Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in Seoul. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. markets were closed on Monday for the Memorial Day holiday, with the S&P 500 sitting at a nine-month high. Asia-Pacific markets were mixed yesterday. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 rose 1% to a new 33-year high, trading at the highest level since July 1990. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index slid to new lows for the year as investors worried about China's recovery running out of steam. China's industrial profits fell 20.6% in the January to April period compared with the same period last year. By the close, the benchmark index had fallen 196 points or 1% to an almost six-month low of 18,551 and the Hang Seng is down more than 18% from its January peak. Futures markets are pointing to further falls of around 90 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. And the tech index slipped 1.2%, hurt by Metran, which tumbled over 8%. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index slumped 1.3%, taking its losses from the January 27th peak to 19.6% and very close to sliding into a bear market, which is defined as a fall of 20% from the recent high. 
Mainland markets were mixed. The Shanghai Composite was up a third of a percent at 3,221, but close to a five-month low. The CSI 300 index of the largest listed stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen dropped 0.4%, having erased all of its 2023 gains last week, and it's heading for a fourth straight losing month. The benchmark has tumbled almost 9% from its peak at the end of January, wiping out $1 trillion US dollars in value from domesticated shares. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant and our regular Wednesday commentator. Very good morning to you, Stuart. Tuesday, commentator. Good morning, Peter. Oh, sorry, Tuesday. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like rushing towards the end of the week here. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can't wait to get there. <laughs> and also with us on this Tuesday morning, we have Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Uh, good morning, Peters and Stuart. And over in Seoul, South Korea, we have Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Good morning. Glad to be here. Let's start uh, by reviewing some of the data that's going to come out of China this week. China's going to release official purchasing managers index data tomorrow, followed a day later by the private sector Kaishin Manufacturing PMI. The contraction in the manufacturing sector is expected to moderate slightly, while the rate of expansion in the stronger services sector is expected to slow. I think, Stuart, this is all going to be about the consumer, isn't it? Given that we've heard a lot from the governments, from the Ministry of Commerce, from President Xi Jinping, Premier Li Chang, about the need to boost consumption this year. Yes, it is. And I think that um, we are beginning to see a slowdown in China. This is uh, not what the rest of the world necessarily wants, but um, it is something that is inevitable. I think China has grown to a level where uh, now even a slight downturn does have quite a big influence around the rest of the world. So I do expect to see a slowdown and I do expect to see... Um, reduced economic numbers over the next few months uh, and I think that we should not be too surprised. This is uh, inevitable with the consumer uh, no longer being so um, active in, in buying things in China too so this is, uh, this is, this is part of the uh, change that uh, has been going on in recent weeks recent months Marco, your members at IMA Asia, are they indicating that they're seeing a slowdown? And, and if so, what's, what's the sort of intensity of that that they're feeling on the mainland? Well, it's, it's a moving target, Peter. But, I mean, the last, last temperature check, and remember, it's a relatively small sample, but fast-moving consumer goods, high-end luxury, looked all right. The other rest of the consumer market was problematic, and B2B sales were, were worrying for many companies. Mm. And, you know, looking forward, they didn't see a quick recovery. They may or may not be right, but it sort of reinforces some of the worries and some of the worries that you mentioned, you know, that reflected in the stock market. Not sure about uh, what the Chinese economy prospects are moving forward. And, of course, that's more important for these companies because if they depend a lot on the U.S. and European markets, uh, they're maybe not not so uh, not so sanguine about what's going on. And if the U.S. consumer slows down as well because the U.S. economy goes into a recession, that's going to be a double whammy, presumably, for the mainland yeah, that's economy. Right. I mean, that's a worry, and of course, it affects affects. We've checked 
affect China's economy as well as individual businesses. Peter, how, how are you seeing this? From, from an investor's perspective, this is important um, data. In, investors seem to be coming to the view that the, the, the post-zero COVID economic rebound on the mainland is, has been rather underwhelming, and that's affecting uh, markets and economies all around Asia. Right. Um, if you wind back uh, beginning of the year, um, there was a lot of uh, pundits, even before uh, the recent data has sort of tipped the consensus of the, uh, the recession uh, uh, being quite uh, impending. Uh, China was supposed to be the uh, big uh, surprise that will, could boost uh, the sagging global economy uh, when and if the recession comes. Now, uh, we have China uh, probably placed to actually soften at a greater pace than the U.S., and I think that is playing a big part, uh, feeding into even the mainland Chinese consumers. Um, I think uh, uh, what we're seeing in the U.S., where despite talks of recession, you have, you know, tech stocks now reaching all-time high. Uh, everyone's very excited about AI. It's uh, it's a decoupling of sorts. Uh, everyone talks about China de-risking. I consider it to be more accurately described as decoupling uh, between the U.S. and China. From mm. a consumer investor standpoint, the Chinese government is saying it was accusing uh, the U.S. government yesterday of just playing with words. It was saying there's no difference between decoupling and de-risking. This is just trying to disguise what is really going on, which is that um, it, it's trying to punish and hurt China. Right, right. Um, I think uh, uh, there's no question that the Chinese consumers themselves, mm. even at the mid to low end consumers, uh, they're taking that to heart. Mm. Uh, I think they're hungry now. So, Stuart, what, what's yeah. behind it? What, what is it that's causing the, the consumer to, to really sort of pause and, and, and complicating this shift towards all these new growth drivers that, you know, the Chinese government was hoping was going to boost the economy? I think you have to remember that China has only just come out of a very deep close down with uh, many consumers not even being allowed out of their flats for months and months on end. And uh, I, my guess is that a lot of the consumers probably have been reevaluating what they do their spending on. Um, what do they want to spend on? Well, it's not necessarily on uh, goods and services. It's, it's maybe they want to do a bit more travel. They want to go further afield. They want to do individual holiday visits to different parts of the world. Uh, because having been locked up for as long as they have been, they, they want to go and see other places. Hmm. They don't want to spend money on things that they already have. They don't need. So I think that's probably the, the major influencing factor at this stage on, on um, why there is beginning to be a slowdown in, in, in the economy. Mark, I suppose when yeah, you look at... We, go ahead. I was going to say, when you look at things like, you know, stagnant income growth, this record high youth unemployment rates, that obviously is not going to help, is it? Consumer confidence. Yeah, none of those are going to help. But just to follow on what Stuart said, which I entirely agree with, um, we're seeing long COVID. Maybe not the medical mm-hmm. version of it, but the uh, impact, it really had an impact on... The it has to, right? It has to have. Mm-hmm. And that's what we hear in our in our meetings as well, how long that's going to be. It's, it's not clear. And same thing with what Peter Kim said as well. Um, clearly, the hope was that China was going to help uh, moderate the impact of whatever was happening in the, the U.S. and Europe. It's, it's you know, still China is going to look 
a little bit, I suspect, a little bit better than either of those two places. But it looks like not at the levels that that had been hoped. So it was interesting. I thought that in in the commentary, I think it was from Census and Statistics Department on the uh, Hong Kong export performance, which wasn't wasn't <laughs> exactly a, a wonderful, saying that you know, yeah, we're worried about the U.S. and Europe, but we expect a faster faster recovery of Chinese of China's economy, which is not being reflected in what we've been saying. Uh, elsewhere to today. So, mm. you know, I hope they're right, but I think they might not be. <laughs> Peter, when we look at this export data from Hong Kong, from South Korea, from Taiwan, it does rather suggest, doesn't it, that uh, the, the mainland co- uh, recovery is really stalling? Um, there are a couple of uh, factors, I think. Uh, one cyclical, which is, as you say, uh, described as stalling, but I think a more structural side of it is that uh, from every sector almost uh, and every product, uh, Chinese local products are replacing uh, the imports, uh, especially the mid-end. Now it's moving up that uh, value chain where, you know, you know the, recently there's been talk about how Germany's exports to China is now slowing. Uh, Germany's exports uh, to China was always considered uh, mid to high end and it was supposedly immune for a number of years, uh, but we've seen that slowing. So, um, I think uh, what you find is a, a combination of uh, cyclical, but also structural, which I think is probably a, a greater concern for all multinationals looking at China as a, the biggest or at least the second largest market thus far. We're seeing it reflected in a lot of corporate results, aren't we, in this first quarter earnings season from all over the world. You have companies in the US like Starbucks, uh, companies in, uh, in Europe reporting the slowdown in China affecting their results. And they seem to, in a number of cases, have been taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and, and the, okay. fact, the fact that they are being taken by surprise um, would suggest that they're not keeping a close eye on their tea leaves very well. Mm. What's the government's got to do about this? Because they're talking a lot. So there's been a lot of high-level signals about rolling out concrete policies to try and steer the economy towards consumption-led growth. But we haven't actually seen anything. We haven't really seen them do anything, have we? So what is it that's holding them back? The consumer. (laughs) Um, I think that the consumer is not going to get so easily fooled any longer Mm. in China in the same way as they've Perhaps were. I think that, um, and bear in mind, I, I, I haven't seen any recent statistics on it, but um, I think household debt in China is quite high. I mean, look at the look at the fact that the pro- property market is stagnating across China. Um, there's a lot of debt involved in the property market, naturally, and I, I suspect that consumers in China are just sort of pulling back a little bit from from being big spenders in the way that they used to be. Mm. Yeah, and the, the reforms that are promised, it may happen in China, uh, such as such as making Chinese consumers and everyone in China feel more comfortable about health care, about education, about housing, etc. They're slower to come. And I, you know, maybe the government is afraid of moving too quickly and that would trigger other other issues as well. I think so far caution. We'll we'll see if there's if there's going to be forced into doing something a little bit more aggressive. Mm. Peter, how much is debt a problem 
Um, we've seen this interesting story from Wuhan about the local government there, the local newspaper, naming and shaming uh, debtors, which sort of, to me, sort of indicates just how big a problem this is and just how much debt is constraining these uh, these local municipalities and, and local governments. And, and maybe that's part of the reason, isn't it? It's just restricting their ability to be able to, to stimulate the economy. It sort of almost suggests they just don't have the measures at the moment to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, China's always had debt issues, but I think uh, why debt issue becoming more important at this juncture is it's, uh, it's culminating with the uh, probably the dropping of the demographic cliff, uh, the geopolitical risks, uh, and uh, uncertain global economic outlook. So I think uh, that by itself was not a big issue before when everything else was okay, but now... Uh, it uh, uh, combines with many other negatives, and uh, you know I, I never underestimate the uh, the intellect of uh, 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 Chinese consumers. Where um, uh, uh, with all these negative plus uh, the austerity measures from a political point, you know, just mm. the conspicuous consumption is now frowned upon at a corporate and consumer level, and that has to hit uh, the sentiment. So mm. I don't think. Uh, we are looking at one problem per se. It's really a combination all uh, uh, coming together uh, that's weighing down what I consider to be fairly sophisticated consumer class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just wonder, well, if the Chinese consumer is a little bit petrified of another wave of COVID. I mean, given how badly China reacted um, to COVID in the last three years, locking up people for months and months on end, I, you know, I, I, I just wonder whether many Chinese consumers are just saying to themselves, well, if, if COVID comes again, we get locked up again, so let's get mm. out and go and have a holiday, go travel somewhere, but let's save up money because we just don't know where we, where, where we will be after uh, another ra- round of COVID. So I, I suspect that there may be some of that in the background there. Mm. Yeah, I think so too, yeah, or something else. There is a COVID wave apparently in China now as there there is a bit of in Hong Kong and they're trying to react to it in a slightly different way than before. But there's always a worry it might tip over. Let me just make one other comment because I was just we just had a meeting in in Singapore last week of of many of our members. And we're talking about China, despite all these issues and, and despite the geopolitical pressures, most of the companies still are committed to China in one way or another. They might be diversifying. They may be looking to uh, to see what they can uh, what they can do that will make them a little, make it a little less risky. But at the same time, it's hard to replace China and the, not only the China market but the China ecosystem for many of these companies in terms of their investments, in terms of their supply chains, and so on. So you know that's that makes it even more challenging. But also uh, also might uh, we might see some uh, some movement there as well so what so what do they make of the u.s government and the european government talking about de-risking or decoupling whatever you want to call it de-risking seems to be the latest buzz phrase isn't it what do they make of that companies that well you can't you can't you can't generalize too much but of course you worry about that every time because what does that mean and what does that mean you prevent u.s companies from investing in china which is one of the proposals on hand and which which uh, which congressional committees are going to try to get involved with and and others. Is this going to be effective? And if so, 
what's that going to do, you know, in terms of a business going forward? Those sort of things is what they, they worry about because they, you know, companies themselves are trying to de-risk mm. <laughs> and, you know, maybe not decouple. In some cases, they've decoupled. Some companies have given up and not just because of geopolitics, but because of differing business environments, maybe in one case, uh, SOEs operate on different financial parameters so they thought they couldn't compete even in markets where they where they had uh, where they were tops in the in market share at least temporarily but didn't see that going forward content regulations data security those sort of things sometimes enter in mm-hmm. so there is some of that and in, including the pressures but at the same time looking for ways to to continue to operate in China and operate successfully Okay, Peter, I want to switch to the US. Republican leaders in the White House apparently have got the backing of enough lawmakers to um, pass this debt default ceiling uh, bill later on this week. As part of it, they've basically frozen government spending for the next two years, and then it will increase by 1% after that. Um, Obviously, this has been weighing on markets. I mean, first of all, was it all worth it just to get a a, a freeze of spending where it is? It's uh, an early election cycle kicking in, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's still uh, over 18 months away and already they're positioning themselves for the uh, presidential election. Um, I mean, we, these debt ceilings, you know, it's uh, uh, everyone's calling the bluff of the two sides that uh, that the government will be paralyzed. And, uh, of course, at the 11th hour, 11.9th hour, we, we'll probably get it resolved somehow. Nobody wants to be blamed for a catastrophe. Uh, but I think... Uh, uh, the reaction of the uh, equity market is very interesting. I mean, despite uh, this debt ceiling, despite the talks of uh, now um, no rate cuts uh, to come in the second half, um, the equity market's been strong. Um, the, you can see the animal spirits of the investors have uh, uh, accelerated. So I see this as a uh, another form of decoupling where bond market is placing a, a further rate hikes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet the equity market is, and especially from a growth uh, segment, is rising. So we are seeing some very uh, uh, contradictory uh, uh, signals from the financial markets. And the dollar as well, of I, course. I, I, That's where the other reaction is. I think it's more, it's, it's more than the election cycle, I think. There's, it's the deep divisions that have even grown within the country and within the within within the political uh, political area as well and that's going to be worrying going forward i the equity markets might be calm now and you know we hope this is going to be settled it's still not done it's still not a done deal uh speaker of the house speaker mccarthy thinks he's got 95% support in the house we'll see we'll see in the next Next yeah. uh, next couple of days, but also the the Democrats are where part of the problem is because the uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party is very unhappy with this. Yeah. But there is something called the New Democratic Coalition, which was formed during the Clinton administration, has about ninety five members, and they've come out in support. Mm-hmm. So the hope is that you know that 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 goes through, and then the Senate is okay as well. Although there will be some. Certainly some votes against it in the Senate as well, but uh, perhaps not enough to overturn the decision. So I I suppose what happens next then is that investors focus on the Fed now, don't they? Once this is out of the way, it's all about are we going to see further rate rises and markets, Fed fund futures markets are rather 
now said to themselves, we, we think there are going to be more rate rises, particularly since that inflation data, the PCE um, inflation data that we had um, last week, which showed um, inflation accelerating um, year on year. It reached uh, four, four point, uh, what was it? 4.4 percent, I think. Sorry, 4.7 percent last month from 4.6 percent in March. It it's really isn't under control, is it, inflation in the US at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, um, all my contacts in the U.S. and me being there for a number of times over the past six months, uh, U.S. economy is strong, um, you know, and and I, tr- I probably point to this powerful wave of onshoring uh, movement that's going on. I mean, you have uh, uh, non-U.S. Uh, companies announcing billions of dollars in investments and actually putting, uh, putting that to work already. Uh, and I think uh, that's where uh, another sort of decoupling that we see from the U.S. versus China, uh, it's working, um, you know, at the cost of many other uh, undesired, uh, undesirable consequences. Uh, but at least short, short term, it's working. And you, I think the Democrats would definitely like to have this trend continue uh, through to the presidential election, which would uh, be their uh, key blueprint for success for the uh, coming year. Yeah, I, I think the issue in the US is that there's very low unemployment, uh, continues to be very low unemployment, and and the forecast for um, uh, an increase in unemployment for later this year is relatively uh, moderate, and that is stimulating the economy and continuing to improve the possibility of investment returns. So um, there's a lot of positive stuff going on in the U.S., which uh, has been um, probably overlooked due to the negativeness of the debt uh, crisis discussions. The, the, the well, there's some negative coverage about interest rate increases from the Fed, but the Fed has got plenty of leeway to increase a little bit more because, with very full employment, it doesn't have to be too concerned. Um, and of course, the, this this is the way they're looking at this stage. I, I want to ask you all about artificial intelligence. This euphoria that we're seeing in AI stocks at the moment, led by NVIDIA after its results last week, where it forecasts more than $4 billion of additional revenues above analysts' expectations, which is coming from booming demand for um, AI chips. We've seen uh, NVIDIA itself, it's almost worth a trillion dollars now, will be the first trillion dollar uh, sort of chip company. Jensen Huang, who's the co-founder of NVIDIA, basically says we're entering a new era. Artificial intelligence is going to completely revolutionize the corporate landscape, going to make it much easier for anyone to generate code. Um, what, what do you think? Is this um, real or is it, just a, is it just a phase, unrealistic euphoria? What, what's your thoughts? Um, maybe, Mark, do you want to start? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if everybody's euphoric about it. So, some are, and you know, we, we talk about it a lot. In fact, I'm having a discussion in a, in a couple of days with another company I'm involved with about this and the implications. Of course, some of it's quite positive, and some companies are using using AI and and being able to uh, being able to, uh, to to speed up some of their systems to to do things they couldn't do before. But the worry, of course, is you've heard it before. Is it taking over in some ways? Mm. And what's it going to do with jo- about jobs? And how's it going to affect people and the companies themselves? I mean, are we looking at a Tom Cruise movie, or or, is it, or something something quite quite different? So, 
you know, that that's the worry. They see advantages, but very, you know, the discussion is always the pros and the cons. Mm. Yes, this is great and this is happening, but what about what what are the what are the implications for the company actually and on the people that we hire and that are, are working with us right now? I mean, on on the jobs front, Jensen Huang says what's going to happen is that people without AI skills are going to be replaced by people with AI skills rather than necessarily be replaced by by robots. Well, that might be what you'd expect to hear from someone who runs this big chip company. Mm. Um, I, you see, the thing is with AI, it, it is artificial. We forget the fact that it is not real. And the fact that it is artificial, it is being used in some parts of the global economy, particularly in, in computer games and other things. Um, the, this, whilst it's in that area, computer gaming and and, and the like, it's relatively safe, but it's when AI and, and uh, is is then taken into the real world. When, what happens if we have a, for example, uh, an airplane that is uh, being uh, piloted by AI and crashes, <laughs> and that's the that's the that's the real risk. And if that happens, AI is completely wiped out. I think for for quite a long time. And I think this is this is the thing that we need to be a little bit concerned about with AI. That uh, whilst it is in the sort of relatively um, innocent leisure areas of our lives, that's fine. But as soon as it starts getting into the real part of our lives, controlling what we do, um, then we have something very real to worry about. Peter, how do, how do you see this? Is this uh, is the the sort of the euphoria that we're seeing in chip stocks like Nvidia, not just Nvidia, but other companies around the world like um, SK Hynix, uh, Samsung, yeah. Taiwan Semiconductor, and then all the related stocks like the AI software companies, the companies that make the routers and the cloud software. They're they're all booming, aren't they? Um, talking to number of companies, uh, we talked about dozens and dozens of companies that are uh, at different sectors reacting to this uh, scenario. Uh, one common thread uh, consensus that uh, I hear from them is that they commoditize part of their services, whether they're banking or manufacturing. Uh, a big chunk of that menial tasks are going to be replaced with AI. Uh, so we're not even before we talk about the very, very sophisticated end of human resources, we're talking about the commoditized end. And I think that's easily replaceable. And I think that's the part that will really hit the uh, the jobs and uh, the mid to low end income class. Mm. Um, I think there will always be, uh, in most sectors, uh, uh, the highly qualified, uh, inventive, creative part of human uh, resources that will uh, uh, be uh that will survive. And in fact, maybe that will even be even more appreciated because of this commoditization for the other side. Uh, so I think the, the from a macro perspective, uh, the unfortunately, the um, mid to low end labor uh, will have to be affected. Uh, but I think uh, it's a, a bifurcation, polarization of the labor market where truly skilled people uh, will be valued even higher. Uh, whereas the low end uh, may uh, may have to find a, a very uh, a, a different uh, form of uh, uh, labor uh, mm-hmm. to, to be utilized in this labor force. It's quite scary, uh, not just not for me actually, but for my kids. 
uh, having young kids, uh, uh, and I have to guide them through this this jungle uh, that I think will happen in the next ten years. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I, I having I was just in Singapore and at, at the hotels, you know, who, who are having real real problems finding people to do things, and the people they've hired aren't aren't experienced. They don't seem very motivated, and you think that. You know, they could perhaps easily be replaced by something a little bit more uh, less human and, and more more effective and, and no less of a personality in some ways either. Jensen Huang was saying even computer programmers, coders are at risk because, um, you know, why do you need a specialized coder or data analyst when you can just ask, uh, you know, uh, your, your computer to basically write a program for you? And there, there was a study that was saying the cost of uh, GPT-4, which is the latest sort of large language model that's uh, being developed, it costs only 0.5% of a senior data analyst. So even specialist um, jobs seem to be under threat from this. I think uh, recent uh, data suggests that there are a lot of uh, average to mediocre programmers that's been uh, sucked into the industry <laughs> because of certain demand. Mm. Uh, so uh, again, I would probably uh, uh, start from the low end of the uh, the programmers' uh, uh, labor pool. Uh, but once again, um, you know the truly skilled uh, who who are qualified uh, will uh, probably have a place. At least that's what I'm telling my daughters. Anyway. <laughs> are you are you telling us, Peter, though, that we should be worried for our jobs as well? I mean, will AI take over this commentary at some point? Um, no, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, this uh, the human factor is always as a play, place. I think uh, you know, but, uh, once uh, Peter invites uh, AI panelists on the board uh, on the same panel yes. to dis- mm. debate us, and then we'll see what happens. But. Mm. Uh, Maybe well, I think the good, the good thing about human analysis is that we always get it wrong at some point. question is, if AI gets it wrong, how, do, how would AI cope with it? Mm. <laughs> one, thing, one thing I noticed with uh, ChatGPT is that uh, it doesn't have a sense of humor. Yeah, I was about to say the same, about to say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> We've so, got some hope then. <laughs> so, so next week, Money Talk will have an AI uh, presenter. Of course, you, you've made a big mistake assuming it had a human one in the first place. Yeah, that's, that's also true. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all very much. Great to hear your thoughts on a, on a wide range of, of topics there. You heard Peter Kim, who is Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. Mark Michelson, who's Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. And then our regular Tuesday commentator, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Just a reminder that you can find more information about some of the stories we've discussed on today's programme, along with Mark updates at my website which is peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com on wednesday's program i'm going to be joined by capital preservation specialist enzio von Farl, hao hong who is chief economist at grow investment group and david roche president and global strategist at independent strategy see you tomorrow money talk 